0: Titus chapter number two, really the outline that we have been focused on throughout the worship service is the outline that we find right here directly in scripture. Um, As we work our way through this passage, we'll be looking at verse number 11, really just through verse 13, and then verse uh, 14 um, we will uh, be examining uh, next week um, as we uh, split this passage up just a little bit. Um, This is a passage that considers the grace of God and examines how it is at work in our life. Um, It calls us to a response um, to the grace of God as well. Um, But really we are examining and kind of asking the question, why did God send Jesus? Why did God send Jesus? Let me read again this passage, verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we approach uh, this passage, we recognize that it's talking about a person, Uh, that the grace of God is centered upon the very person of Jesus, the Christ. Uh, And when we begin to answer the question, why did God send Jesus, this concept of grace uh, rises uh, to the forefront. Um, We could simply answer it by acknowledging that God sent Jesus so that we can be saved. This is really the triumph of grace. Uh, This is the victory that grace produces. Uh, Verse number 11 spells this out very clearly when it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace, in a very real sense, is the difference maker. Um, If you look at verse number 11, uh, we are introduced with this concept of for. For the grace of God has appeared. So let 's just pull back and remind ourselves of the situation in Crete. Um, if you think back about how Paul has been talking about and addressing the people in Crete, in fact, we call them Cretans, right? Um, and so he has not pulled punches. He has looked at what has been going on in Crete, and he says ultimately, they are a mess. The Cretans have really messed it up, right um, That's kind of the concept that we 're left with. and they are still, though, what Paul is doing is he's saying, Hey, Titus, I want you to go to Crete, and I want you to share these theological truths. Now, on some level, that seems fruitless or really, really hard at the very, at the very least. Because what's Titus going to do? Titus is going to come, and he's going to share truth. that Hasn't Paul already been sharing that truth? Is that really going to make a difference? Uh, that Titus is going to say, Hey, maybe you guys haven't heard but the real difference maker is not just the truth, but the person of the Holy Spirit that uses that truth to change lives. And so when you think about grace, um, it's this this quantity, this, uh, this element that ultimately comes from God and is crucial for changing people. And it's good for us to recognize that what What God has done is he has not just given us the words of truth, but he has actually poured out his love in a tangible way to change us. That there is a genuine change that takes place. Uh, The grace of God that Paul is relying upon is the same grace that is available to all of us. So just pause a moment and consider in your own life. Do you believe that the grace of God is capable of changing you. You know, if you're a believer, you don't have to consider very long to think back to that time that God worked in your heart and burdened your heart to turn to God through Jesus in salvation. And say, what was it that changed me? And the answer is, for a believer... It's grace. It is God's work in our heart. And maybe you are now in the position that you might question or doubt a little bit, not by saying it out loud, but thinking it in your heart. Is God's grace still at work in the same way? Does he continue to change people in the same way? Maybe in this group, I I know just about every person here. That's a phenomenal thought, isn't it? Uh, but yet, it, it, it's also true that within this group, um, just as we think about every name, every person, every story, is it also likely that there is somebody that you have not come to Jesus as Savior? That you've heard about it, you've read about it, you've talked to others about it. But yet, actually coming to Jesus as Savior, surrendering your life to Him, embracing that grace and maybe in your heart you say I've heard about it so many times I don't even know if it could ever happen and can I just encourage you that dear friend if you turn to God in salvation your life will be changed that is absolutely fundamentally the truth and I would encourage you that if you think that that won't happen, if you think that that's for other people, if you think that maybe that's just God is not going to do that for you, dear friend, it is for you. It is for you. I don't know if you're ever in the habit of reading testimonies of faith, people that come to salvation. But what a great joy that is. Um, in uh, one of my opportunities uh, in just ministering to people, um, seeking to meet with a particular individual um, that... Uh, just needs to constantly be confronted with the gospel. I thought one of the tactics was simply to start reading testimonies of faith. So here's this person and how they got saved, and here's this person and how they got saved. And you say, well, did that person then, the person you're reading that to, did they get saved? And I would say, not yet, not yet. Uh, But what a powerful thing, and what a good it did for my soul. Um, as you're sitting there and you're reading that, and you're just hearing how God reached into somebody's life and transformed them. Uh, I'm, uh, that book that I've been reading, I finish it now, Unbroken, it's still stuck in my mind, I'm sorry. You know, and then it just comes up in illustrations. You're like, hey, get, find some new illustrations, Pastor. That's right, well, these are new, they're just, but they're just you know, stacked up. right? So I have two illustrations from the Unbroken book in this message. Uh, which is ridiculous. It's like, you know, read, read other things too. But, but it's what I'm reading right now, right? And one of the, one of the aspects of Unbroken uh, that just uh, stirred my heart, uh, quite literally choked me up, right? Um, is as I was uh, reading how Louis Zamperini had this deep-seted bitterness against God and a pull to drowning out uh, all of the noise uh, through alcohol, uh, and how his wife, um, who I would look at and said, man, he never should have married her, and she never should have married him, right? I mean, it was like, that was such a mistake. Where was somebody telling him, what are you doing? Um, and yet, right at that cusp of divorce, where they're going to split up, um, she determines to go to a Billy, Billy Graham crusade, and she gets saved. And then she begins to tell Louie, "You need to come, you need to come, you need to come." And ultimately he fought it, and he said, "I'm not going, I'm not going." And then he determined he's going to go, and he sat there and he listened just to a clear presentation of the gospel. And he look at it and you go, "What was so special about Billy?" And the answer is, "What? Nothing. Nothing. It was this. It was God's grace. But he simply spoke the truth and he shared the truth of scripture and he pointed out how there can be freedom in Christ and how there are people here that needed to be saved and he talked clearly and he talked pointedly uh, and it was glorious to just, you'll see God change his life and he became a different person. He was gloriously saved. Now I'd say, dear friends, we must never get to that point where we think God isn't doing that anymore. He is. It is all around us. Um, it's a part of what he is doing within this world. And when we think of this particular passage, it's a part of our life, and we should never let that go. Rehearse it in our minds. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace is a difference maker. But grace is also a hero. It is a particular person for the grace of God has appeared. Um, This concept of for um, is to point back to the reason for godliness. How can you be godly? All of those things that it talks about in Titus chapter 2, to the the mature and the young and the slaves. How can you live that out in your life? You have to rely on that grace. And that grace has been given. But that grace is something that has appeared. The underlying Greek word uh, for has appeared there means to shine in a dark place or become gloriously Visible. So the grace of God in the form and person of Jesus the Christ appeared. Isn't that wonderful to think about? Um, In in secular literature of that time, uh, that word was used of a hero which would appear in order to bring deliverance, and so the hero would appear. And that's the idea that we're talking about, right? Jesus Christ appeared. Just remember that trajectory of the redemption story. The history of mankind and all of the Bible points towards the need for Jesus, now we look back and we see some remarkable characters, don't we? We see people of great faith. And we see all kinds of tremendous stories that are there. Real people, not just fake things. So, not—that's not, That's not what we're talking about at all. These are real lives where people lived it out. And yet in the midst of all of that, there needed to be somebody greater. You know, you think about Abraham. He was a man of faith, wasn't he? But at crucial moments, he lived by sight, not by faith. Moses Moses was a tremendous leader, but he resisted that leadership, and he desired to live a life on his own terms. Daniel lived an exemplary life as an exile, but really Daniel was tremendously limited in who he was able to rescue. He could live out a godly lifestyle, but who could he save? Joseph trusted in God. That caused others to trust in him, but Joseph, he grew old, and he died. His reach as well, was limited. The judges, start thinking about the judges, they had moments of brilliance, but man, they were flawed humans, weren't they? Uh, When you consider all of the judges. Uh, David, the kings, uh, out of Israel, the greatest king was David, I think that's fair, scripture pulls that out and makes that clear. David was a man after God's own heart, but as soon as I say David, and as soon as I say a man after God's own heart, you start thinking, what, Bathsheba? You're horrible, you're mean, but we do, don't we? We, start, we immediately think of all of these negatives that are, that are there. His loyalty was, to God was remarkable, but it had to be renewed. The prophets and the priests, they were often set apart to God, but they could not change the hearts of the people. Um, look at this passage. You remember this passage. Hosea chapter 6, verse 4. This is God pleading with Israel. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. It's like the fog, right? Like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. My judgment goes forth as light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt Offerings, and so here's God talking with His nation that He has pulled out and set apart, and He acknowledges that they are fickle in their faith, uh, that it it wanes, it waxes, and it wanes. So the story of the Bible points towards the need for a Redeemer, the need for God Himself to take on flesh to come and make all things new, the need for a hero. So after all the promises from God for a deliver, for a deliverer, we end at Malachi. And we have this 300 years of silence, right? This pause. And then the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour. is Christ the Lord this grace took the form of a person a hero but this grace it's not just a difference maker it's not just a hero it's also for everyone Titus chapter 2 says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people for all people deliverance is for all people and I love how the Bible does not equivocate about that uh but the potential is there for everybody. The grace of God ushers in the light of a new day for every human being without distinction, that everyone can turn to God. Not everyone will, uh, but they ought to. The offer is in front of them. All should. It is available for all people. And so we see in Scripture again and again this point that's driven home. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so let me just plead with you. If you are somebody who is not a believer, that you have not embraced the grace of God, then dear friend, there is, this is true of your life, that you have kept yourself separate from God. That you are dealing with the burden of your sin by yourself. That you are trusting in no one but your own strengths, your own efforts. And I would plead with you from the pages of Scripture that this is why God sent Jesus, is so that he could change your life, that it's available to you, it's offered to you, it's there in front of you. And you say, what do I need to receive this? It's nothing more than coming and putting your faith in him. It's simply acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. It's a willingness to say, I will trust God's plan in the person of Jesus to save me from that which will condemn me to eternal hell. And dear friend, if you have not embraced that, then you are living life apart from God. You say, I know God, He's a part of my life, but if you are not surrendering to Him, if you aren't turning your life to Him, if you aren't pursuing Him by faith, then you are not living in a life that He has prescribed. You are not following Him. And you are saying, I do not need that grace. In other words, what you're saying, is that even though God sent Jesus, he didn't have to. I could do this on my own. I say, oh, dear friend, you need Jesus just as surely as I do. Turn to him. Accept his offer of salvation. So why did God send Jesus? He sent Jesus so that we can be saved, but he also sent Jesus so that we can be set apart If the first is the triumph of grace, the freedom that comes from what grace brings, the second is the tutelage of grace. Uh, This is where grace trains us. Titus chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace, in that sense, um, is a trainer. It's a trainer for us. Uh, This idea of training is is the... Uh, The word instruct—it's not the common word for teach uh, that's used regularly throughout Scripture. Rather, it's a word that you know connotates a sort of education and guidance that we would usually associate with like parental oversight. um, That we would view it that way, Um, or even God's loving and sometimes painful direction, supervision, training in our life. Let me give you a couple of passages to point this out. Acts chapter seven, verse twenty-two. Moses. Was instructed. That's our word. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt, of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So that's our word. What happened? Moses was trained in all of the way of the Egyptians. Um, another passage that uses the same word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. "But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world." that 's the same word. So this training that Grace is talking about um, is, is not just rote teaching, right? Um, it is a kind of a walking along with. There's a practical aspect that is a part of it. Everyone alike is part of this. Because if you think of this passage, it says, training us. And so here's Paul writing to Titus to teach to the churches at Crete, and he includes himself in it. That grace continues to train him. What are the ways that God, through his grace, was training Paul? Well, man, they were, they were myriad, weren't they? There's a plethora of ways that God was training teaching and training Paul. And dear friends, that's the same for us as well. But this is grace. Everyone alike is equally schooled by divine grace. On this same point, um, even though Paul earlier had harsh words for the character of the Cretans, it's not as if he thinks of them differently than other humans, right? Because ungodliness and worldly passions are part of everyone's life. There's a universal need for the grace of God. So let me just ask us, let me ask you, in what ways is God currently training you? Is he shaping you? How is he pouring out his grace in your life? What does that look like uh, in your life? Grace is a trainer. And what does it train us to do? It ta- tells us to say no. It says training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. To live So this is instruction for everyday living. God's desire is to shape our very lives. He's concerned not just with how we think, but with how we live. Now this, of course, corresponds well to Titus. Titus is so concerned with godliness where, because he says you need to be godly so that others will have their hearts turned towards God, right? And so he's so concerned about that. And that's why he talks here about so that we might be able to live. The grace of God is interested in your day-to-day. You know, the grace that we receive through Jesus, though, is for us. I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that God needs you to be godly. Um, sometimes it's, it's almost where we slip into this thinking, where it's like God, God demands that we're godly because somehow that's good for him. It's friend, that's not the case, right? Um, the reason that God calls us to be godly is because it's good for you. It's good for us. It's good for me. Uh, this godliness that he desires for us is what is best for us. Um, consider justification. Justification is the concept that we have been made just by the blood of Jesus, right? Uh, That means that we are completely, in God's eyes, completely secure. It is just as if we've never sinned. That when God looks at a believer now, he doesn't see your sin, he sees who Jesus is, right? He sees what Jesus has done. And so there's no condemnation. That's what Romans tells us. There's no condemnation. So you say, why should I live a godly life? And the answer is, because it's best for you. It's best for you. It's not that your godliness is going to cause God to love you more. He can't love you more. He loves you as much as he can. It's not that your godliness is going to put you in a position where you you can earn anything with God. Of course that's not the case. It is all for you. This is what the grace is for. And we can slip into thinking about it wrongly. Where it's like God is constantly telling me what to do. And it's a burden. And it's like, no, it's a freedom. It's a joy. He's telling you these things so that you can be holy. If he's dissatisfied with something, he's simply dissatisfied with the fact that your life doesn't reflect what is already true in Jesus. And we have opportunity to see that changed. The truth is that God loves you so much that he won't let you alone. Isn't that a blessing? And you say, well, I keep pushing back against him. Sometimes I can get him to be quiet. <laughs> you say, ah, it's a horrible position to try to deaden the voice of God. Hey, is there anything in your life where you are currently trying to deaden the voice of God? Think about that for a moment. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What's ungodliness? Ungodliness is the idea of of impiety. Um, Let me say it more clearly. It's it's living as if God didn't exist. It's pretending God's not there. Think about that, right? Right? Are there aspects of your life where you say, I just want to not, I don't don't want to deal with God right now. I'll say, dear friend, God is pouring out his grace so that you can not have that in your life, right? So that you can say, no, I want God in my life. I need that. He's training you uh, in that, uh, in that, you know, position, in that thinking. And worldly desires, desires which belong to this earth, or we could put it, Slightly different. Um, It's desires where we want something more than God does. Or we fail to want something as much as God does. It's inordinate desires. These worldly desires that are there. Uh, And and we, we need to recognize that part of what God is doing is he is shaping us differently from that. And what a blessing that is. What a joy that is. And if you're resisting some of that, friend, let the Spirit of God challenge your heart today. Turn from that. Turn away from it. Say no to it. Let his training work. When El Nino's rain deluged Southern California um, some winters ago, the the potential dangers of mudslide became a a nightmare for one family. Uh, And while the family was still in their home, a a wave of mud tore through the house. And that wave of mud um, broke the house in two And it swept a sleeping baby out into the night. Uh, The parents began to search through the darkness for the child. um, And they were frantic with with fear. They're tromping through the mire. If you can think, if you can imagine what that was like, right? Uh, This liquid mud that was destructive and just coated everything. And so they were searching through the mud for their sleeping child, Throughout the entire night, they searched uh, their, their house and the area around it. And when morning came, a rescuer, himself covered in mud, came to the parents, and in his arms was this mud caked bundle, this baby, filthy, but alive. What an unbelievable moment. And you know what that mother then, then did? She clung to that baby despite its filth. Can you imagine, right? Did the mother care that the baby was covered in muck? Not a, not a bit. But then she immediately began to do what? Wash the filth away. Um, and she determined in that moment to keep the child out of the mud for the future. And and so I'm I'm using this illustration to pull out this truth about what God has done. God sees us in our muck, covered in that mud, and he desires to cleanse us from it. It doesn't keep him from us. It plunges him into it. His holiness is apart from it. But his love says, I'm going to wrap my arms around you, around you, around me. Um, And then he says, though, but I want you to have no more part of it. And so, so many times we take this concept of godliness or holiness and we say this is just a burden that God has put on us, but it's so far from that. He knows it's horrible for us. And he says, I want you to have nothing to do for it because that's the thing that was going to kill you. It was destroying your life. And he says, stay away. What a wonderful concept. This is what grace does. Grace trains us, it teaches us to say no. What is God calling you to say no to? But it also trains us to say yes. The second part of the passage, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It trains us as well to recognize those things that we ought to pursue. Those things that are good for us. And so we have our marvelous word of self control that is there, used again and again and again uh, in Titus. Self controlled, upright. The idea that the, the word that we would normally use is righteous. Um, self controlled, righteous, and godly, the opposite of the godlessness, right? Lives that are focused on including God in our lives. Self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There is a need for our will to engage in this battle. The grace of God is available for us, but it's not the kind of thing where God is forcing his will into the place of our will. That he has given us a choice, only a robust pursuit of grace appropriates what he's talking about here. We have the opportunity to see our lives trained. We have the opportunity to embrace in that training. We could think of this as the way that we would think about Um, the way that we would train anybody, right? We would train them, whether it's our children, whether it's any other kind of training. We would say, I need them to understand. They have have a certain amount of training that's simply behaviorism, right? Where it's like, do this, you know, kind of like Pavlov's dogs. Where it's like, I'm gonna ring the bell and you're gonna start to salivate. It's like, do this, because if you don't do this, this will happen. But this is beyond that. This is not just training someone to have the right behavior. It's not just saying, if you do this wrong thing, you'll suffer this consequence. Or if you do this right thing, I'll give you a candy, right? Um, it's, it's beyond that. Um, it's, it's the ability for us to recognize we want to love the things that God loves. And we want to hate the things that God hates. Hey, can I ask you that question? So we consider that in your life. Are you growing more deeply into love with the things that God loves? And maybe you look at it and you say, I know that I should love God's word, but I don't love God's word. I know that I should spend time into it, but I just don't love it. And you say, how do I love it? And I would say, friend, that's what grace is for. Grace is there to teach you how to love God's word. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can get to the point in your life where you could love the word of God? where you could wake up in the morning and you're like, I want to read God's word today because I want to do it. Hey, if you wake up in the morning and you say, oh man, i got to read God's word. I know I'm supposed to. It keeps me out of the muck. It's going to be really good. <laughs> so you're missing it. You're missing it, right? God's grace is there to actually teach you to love it. You say, Pastor, that's what I want. So you've got to pursue it. You've got to be willing to pursue it. But make no mistake, that is what the grace of God is there to do. That's what this passage is saying. God caused his grace to appear, to train us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, and godly lives. That's what it's there for. How could it work for those in Titus and Crete How can it work for Paul and Titus and people in Crete and yet not work for you? You say, I'm just broken. You're not that broken. Can I simply suggest, can I humbly suggest you aren't pursuing it. It is available. You have to pursue it. You have to want it. You have to say, I want to love the things that God loves. It trains us to say no. It trains us to say, right. Why did God send Jesus? So that we can be saved, so that we can be set apart, and thirdly, so that we can be secure. This is the trajectory of grace. Pastor Joel talked about future grace. That's what we're talking about here. Verse number 13, he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, And so we have this, this combination of the great God and Savior, right? Um, And who is the great God and Savior? It's one person. It's Jesus. It's Himself. It's Jesus Christ. Uh, But He says in verse 13, waiting. Uh, What is the idea there? The idea here is uh, an active waiting. This is not idleness, this is not nonchalance, Uh, but rather it's a, a, a posture of dogged confidence in God and His sure promises. Not passivity in the face of an uncertain future. It's not sitting back on our haunches and saying, maybe we'll see what's coming, right? There is a, a stubborn solidarity here with a prescribed future. It's looking at what God has promised, and it says, I believe in that with all of my heart, and I'm pursuing after it. That's what we're talking about. This is the concept that is used many times by Jesus himself. Um, I don't know if I put this back. I did. Uh, Luke chapter 23 uh, verse 50. It says, now there is a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. You remember him? Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. What council? The Sanhedrin. A good and a righteous man. Okay. That causes us to pause. Because the Sanhedrin were not good and righteous. But Joseph was. It says, who had not consented to their decision and action. Um, so the Sanhedrin sent Jesus to the cross. But Joseph had not consented to that, It says what? And he, and I underlined it, bolded it, it's right there, right? And he was looking for the kingdom of God. That's our word. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. What was Joseph of Arimathea doing? Um, He wasn't being passive. He was being active. He wasn't consenting. He was doing everything he can. In fact, what did he do here? Um, He went and asked for the body of Jesus. Um, This was not a passive response. So the nature, this nature of waiting that we're talking about, it's it's proactive, it's alert, it's expectant. It's waiting that's ready to jump in and hasten something if possible. How do I hasten the second coming of Jesus? I can't. I can't. But I ought to want to. I ought to be ready. I ought to be looking to do it. But it's like, man, I'm so excited about this. Um, I had just uh, scrolled through a number of uh, pictures Um, of people coming home, military people coming home, and I forgot to put some of them in my PowerPoint. Isn't that ridiculous? I have them on my computer. I forgot to move them over. Uh, But some of those pictures, you can just picture them in your mind now. Now I'm going to just engage your imagination and use that as the illustration. Uh, But you can can imagine this. I know you can, because you've seen these pictures. I had one picture of a dad... In his military fatigues, he had just got down off of the plane. There's two other men beside him. They got these huge grins on their face. And he's like this, and he's got his arms out. And you see this young boy, probably seven or eight years old, and he's running all out, and he's got his arms out, and he is pumped to see his dad. How was he waiting for him? Those families that are there, they're looking forward to the person, this active waiting. And that's what we think of normally, I I would suggest. That's what we think of normally when we think of the second coming. But I want to draw your attention to one, one more aspect in this passage. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Kind of a weird way to say it, isn't it? Why doesn't he simply say, waiting for the appearing of Jesus, (laughs) Jesus, <laughs> or the great God and Savior Jesus. What's the point of waiting, the appearing of the glory? What's the point of that? Well, will go, go all the way back to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has what? Appeared. The grace of God has appeared. But now he's pointing out, waiting for the blessing, hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God. Um, so, so what is he talking about? Uh, Why not simply say Jesus um, here? The picture is not just the appearance of Jesus himself. That's the idea of the the kid running to his dad, right? There is a relational component. And we ought to be looking forward to Jesus um, in that regard. But there's also this picture of the resplendent or the dazzling or the stunning appearance of him who will arrive. So, What's being captured here? Um, Here's what's being captured. This is Jesus in all his glory. And and the reason that that's important is because what it communicates, it's communicating a security, a salvation that is there. Uh, I I mentioned, I was going to use one more unbroken illustration. One of the things uh, that was fascinating to think about um, is that as people got ready to receive back these POWs uh, from World War II, um, who had just been starved and just, just abused in so many ways. And they were warned, right? Be prepared, because he doesn't look like he used to. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, not in the sense of a negative. Okay, so let me, let me give one more concept. Uh, they talked about um, how in those prisoner of war camps... They would hear rumors all the time about how the war was ending. But then they described the emotion they felt when they saw a bomber flying overhead and they recognized it's American. And nobody shot it down. And all of, in this case, this story, all of the Japanese captors were nervous and afraid. And they described the feeling that was there. Because not only were they going to be rescued, but they were going to be rescued by somebody who had power. That there was going to be a fullness to this. Uh, And so they were elated beyond description. This concept that All was going to be made right. Their hopes and dreams were being fulfilled. Their prayers were being answered by these American bombers. What a small glimpse of what we ought to be looking forward towards with Jesus. That when he comes back, he will come back in glory and power. And it's not to judge us. It rather is to make all things right. That when Jesus returns, he will return in the clouds with this glory unfolded in front of us all. And our hearts will be thrilled. Because all of those frustrations, all of those angst, all of those pains, all of those injustices will be made right. He's going to end this age. He's going to begin a new one. And so the idea is that when he comes back, not only will he go, he's saving me, but it's going to be he's changing everything. And our hearts will thrill within us. It'll be unbelievable to see that moment and to be blown away by the glory and power of the divine Son of God. Appearing in the sky in all of his glory. And doesn't that just give you, make your heart leap within you to think of what is coming. And so this is what he says. So, so listen, look at this again, verse number 13, waiting for our blessed hope, this, this active waiting for this confident future. What are you waiting for? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. How should this impact our life? I had said here it's the trajectory of grace. It's so that we can be secure. What this does for us now is it reminds us that anything that occurs now is going to be solved later. That he is going to solve it all. And you say I have these anxieties they'll be gone. I have these challenges they'll be solved. You see there's so many people who have been hurt they'll be healed. That what Jesus is going to do is he's going to make all that is wrong right. What an amazing, amazing thing for us to look forward to. So why did God send Jesus? He sent Jesus um, so that we can rejoice in the fact that we can be saved, that we can be set apart, that we can be secure. Let me just ask you these questions. I'm going to ask you some questions. I didn't put these up on the screen. Uh, But let me ask you some questions as you consider these three points. First of all, dear friend, I pushed hard on it earlier in the message. I would simply ask you again, are you saved? Are you saved? Oh, dear friend, I would love, so many people in here would love to just sit down with you and to talk about the gospel and to encourage you to turn towards Jesus Christ. Well, if you need to talk to somebody about that, please seek me out. Seek somebody in here out. Talk to them about that. Are you saved? But then as we consider that, if you're a believer and you say, I am saved, um, let me just ask this question. What is God doing in your life currently? I have every confidence that he is training you, that he is sanctifying you. Uh, What is he doing to point out those things that you need to say no to? What are some of those things? You say, Pastor, I've said no to it so many times. I would say, dear friend, it's time to start saying no again. What are some habits of grace that you can start? What are some things that you can put yourself into the stream of grace? Reading in God's word prayer before him so that you might be able to partake of his grace on a regular basis. Um, Are you interested in learning from God how Jesus can reshape your life or are you interested mainly in just adding Christianity to who you want to be on your own? That's what has to change, doesn't it? A willingness to say, I want you, Jesus, to control my life. Reshape it. Do you want to follow Jesus or merely use Jesus? Now let me ask you this. Are you resting in the coming of Jesus, the second coming? What anxieties do you carry about the future that are really, dear friend, they're really already solved? You are secure. Everything is controlled completely solved that you can rest in who he is. We're going to take just a few moments. Megan's going to come back to the piano and play I'm um, just a stanza and a chorus of a song and we're going to take a few min- minutes and just have a time of personal prayer. Perhaps one of these questions the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of and he's using that in your life and he's using it to point out to you something that he would like to reshape in your life. Will you respond to him? Won't you respond to him? Won't you take this time to just do business with your God?